Well, one of the key things is that sort of the capacity uh, to support emergency response, um, regardless um, of communities, uh, it, it changes depending on, on where you are. And if you're in a city or if you're in a rural community, or even if you're in a remote community, um, also what your, your population uh, looks like, uh, including uh, folks with disabilities and also looking to um, level different levels of income in communities. Um, there's a whole lot of factors uh, that can play into whether or not uh, a specific uh, jurisdiction um, is, is more or less vulnerable uh, in an emergency situation. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. First responders and those on the front line of emergencies are dealing with complex situations. The need to make split-second decisions, move large numbers of people and equipment while keeping calm in an often rapidly changing environment. With that said, though, it is also true that people with disabilities are often disproportionately and adversely impacted by adversities and extreme events. The barriers to the built environment, transportation and communications that people with disabilities face on a day-to-day -day basis suddenly take on life-threatening proportions during an emergency. Supporting people with disabilities in an emergency isn't just the right thing to do. It is also the law. Today, we discuss disability and emergency preparedness. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juita Gupta. My guest today is Caitlin Lowe, who is a research assistant at the McKeegan School, uh, the uh, McKeegan Institute of uh, Public Policy and Governance at Dalhousie University. She joins me today from Halifax. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm really happy you could join us on the program to talk about such an important issue. Thank you so much for the opportunity. More than happy to uh, help spread awareness about this really important issue. Caitlin, what got you thinking about emergency preparedness in relation to people with disabilities? Uh, well, uh, in 2019, the government of Canada passed the Accessible Canada Act, and as part of that, all public services um, were looked to in order to ensure that there was um, accessibility uh, throughout uh, the realm of uh, government programs and services, and emergency management uh, was one key uh, piece of that. So uh, looking from a public safety lens and then looking at how uh, those powers are then distributed um, amongst the provinces and territories, and then also... Um, effectively carried out um, at the municipal level. So there's many um, orders of government that are involved in emergency management processes and sort of looking to accessibility legislation also in individual provinces and territories in conjunction with the uh, recent Accessible Canada Act sort of was a, a bit of a mobilization uh, moment of really looking at how um, emergency management situations um, and efforts around public safety are, are more accessible for people with disabilities. And what did you find based on your research? How adequately or inadequately are the different levels of government, different provinces prepared to work with people with disabilities during some kind of an emergency? 
Well, one of the key things is that sort of the capacity uh, to support emergency response, um, regardless um, of communities, uh, it, it changes depending on, on where you are. And if you're in a city or if you're in a rural community or even if you're in a remote community, um, also what your, your population uh, looks like. Uh, including uh, folks with disabilities and also looking to um, level different levels of income in communities. Um, there's a whole lot of factors uh, that can play into whether or not uh, a specific uh, jurisdiction um, is, is more or less vulnerable uh, in an emergency situation. Uh, so that variance, um, depending on where you are, and particularly Canada, um, is a really uh, key feature of this. And again, because there's so many different levels of government involved, um, you're looking to the municipalities and local governments uh, or even First Nations governments first to initialize um, a response. And then from there, there's additional provincial or territorial uh, responses that are and support that's brought in. And then finally, at the federal level, where often a lot of the funding and coordination and then the military uh, support comes into play. So um, and also different uh, areas are impacted uh, more or less by, by different sort of uh, risks and hazards. So, for example, you could be in a community that is really pr prone to flooding and really used to dealing with that. Or even, for example, here in Halifax, we're getting uh, more and more used to uh, dealing with uh, hurricanes, for example. Um, but then when you start having different um, issues arise, so, for example, if a community isn't used to wildfires and then all of a sudden with climate change, these are starting to happen in, in different areas than they've typically um, been occurring before. So um, that's led to new new challenges um, to try and keep pace with with climate change and then also recognizing uh, changing demographic trends as well. So it's uh, a whole lot of moving pieces and, and many different uh, people involved and also um, government, uh, community organizations and and nonprofits and volunteer-led organizations, all of which also need to be turning an eye to uh, people with disabilities and how we can ensure that programs and services in this emergency management realm are accessible. And in what ways are people with disabilities especially vulnerable during a crisis or an emergency? Well, typically it's um, uh, systems and um, that make people uh, more vulnerable in a situation. Um, uh, people with disabilities in and of themselves um, ha have great skills and resilience and, and experiences um, that, that can uh, help support them in an emergency uh, situation. Um, but often um, there hasn't been um, that work done in advance to try and make sure that uh, different programs and services um, are are accessible. So if uh, folks aren't able to use their mobility aids or rely on life-saving equipment or, or adaptive technologies that are, are affected by an emergency, um, it's really important to make sure that uh, uh, governments know uh, how they can support people with disabilities, um, even at a general level, and then also try and make sure that um, they're working with different disability communities to try and make sure that that breadth of accessibility goes uh, across the board. But if we look at the data, um, people with disabilities are much more likely to, to die in an emergency or, or be significantly impacted or injured, um, often are facing uh, significant challenges when it comes to accessing uh, insurance programs or even different financial uh, aid as well. And then also looking to um, how many folks with disabilities are already um, at risk in terms of uh, often living on lower incomes, uh, potentially being single parents um, or being isolated uh, from all aspects of society, whether that's employment or, or education, where often those social networks uh, can become so powerful and, and uh, supportful, uh, supporting and um, enable that resilience uh, during an emergency that often uh, people with disabilities are, are traditionally 
um, excluded from. So it's really trying to take an eye on on all those aspects of society that are then uh, really put put to the test during a crisis situation. Wonder if we can focus a bit on communications, uh, because one of the key aspects of emergency management is being able to effectively communicate what needs to happen, where do people need to go to the population at large. In your research, how effectively has Canada, or even different provinces for that matter, uh, how effectively have they been able to communicate to people with disabilities during a crisis? I think we've seen sort of, again, varying ap- approaches across the country. Um, I think uh, one resource that, that's been um, really, really talked about recently, but also has been in place in many communities for a long time is things like vulnerable persons registries and how that information is used and how emergency services are are connecting uh, with people with disabilities in advance. Do they have an awareness of what some of the the key needs are and who might be uh, more uh, vulnerable in a situation in order to ensure that they're prioritized. And then also uh, the element of preparation and making sure that uh, folks are aware of the supports and services that they can access in advance of an emergency and trying our best to ensure that uh, that resiliency is, is brought from uh, the individual to the household and then and then so on. Um, and there's a number of municipalities, like for example, um, in Ontario, uh, there's the municipality of Clarington, and um, they do a lot of work around uh, neurodivergent children, uh, specifically um, children with autism, and trying to uh, engage them with emergency services, particularly um, uh, fire services, uh, so that you get that exposure and awareness uh, and that experience of, of seeing a firefighter, understanding what they look like in full uniform, uh, and then understanding uh, how to evacuate their home in an emergency. Uh, so th- those sort of programs are, are really necessary uh, to make sure that uh, communities are trying to work with what they have, what their community looks like, and what works best for them in order to uh, make sure, again, that resiliency is brought from the ground up. Um, often you'll find that these widespread um, policies or services are put in place, but might not meet the nuances of a community. Yes, that's a really good point about nuances, uh, which is why, I mean, you know, when we think about designing communication systems and really just doing emergency, emergency preparedness as a whole, where is the line to be drawn or what's the balance between having a system that's been replicated in different places versus having enough wiggle room or enough flexibility to account for some of that? local nuance to make sure that we're not leaving people out or people are missing the information that we're trying to provide because it doesn't resonate or the, or the situation doesn't apply to the local community. And I, I think we've seen a, a lot of that essentially uh, play out with the sort of the mass uh, alert ready systems um, that um, are implemented by the government of Canada, but then each province and territory um, has different policies and procedures and, and how they go about uh, being able to issue emergency re- alerts. And here in Nova Scotia, we've definitely seen uh, how that can either work for the benefit and safety of everyone, but then also how that can put uh, many folks at risk. So I think um, it's definitely shown that risk communications are still a very challenging area of emergency response in terms of getting information out timely to the general community, not even to mention working specifically with folks with disabilities in order to make sure that they have the information at hand. And we're seeing a lot of disability-based organizations and um, sort of um, accessibility directorates or the like that are sort of at the provincial level um, that are really trying to take take the lead on this and make sure that um, that element of accessible communications, um, whether that uh, be the 
ability to use um, adaptive devices, um, making sure that there's a plain language use, that there's sort of the correct um, information uh, made available and different um, uh, provinces have uh, specific emergency management guides and, and planning uh, supports uh, for people with disabilities. Um, but you'll often find that it's the organizations um, advocating for people with disabilities that are really trying to take uh, the leads on these initiatives and, and working with their communities. They're the ones that will often go door to door if necessary to make sure that their, their members and, and the folks that they're aware of um, are, are safe and, and prepared during an emergency. And that's where that community-based um, organizing come, comes really into play. And it's a matter of just making sure that that can be properly resourced um, to accommodate for the uh, capacity issues that occur across the board. And then also making sure that um, all manner of folks, particularly volunteers um, and emergency service professionals um, have, have training in place to be able to, to communicate with folks with an array of disabilities, um, whether that's intellectual, uh, learning or cognitive, all the way to working with the, the deaf community um, a few years ago, I was talking to someone, a person with a disability, who had been evacuated during the BC wildfires, and she talked a lot about how many of the things that had been challenges for her um, around accessing accessible transportation, and even you know having been evacuated, finding an accessible hotel room to stay in became, I mean, these are problems on a day-to-day -day basis. Forget about having to deal with an emergency, but you factor in the wildfire and the evacuation efforts that the, that the wildfires spawned, and suddenly these things became insurmountable obstacles to being able to effectively evacuate from, from the wildfire zones. Do you have any recommendations or thoughts about how we might actually address uh, barriers to transportation and barriers to accessible um, housing or, you know, in general, just having accessible places to stay in the context of emergency management and preparedness for people with disabilities? Well, I think you're absolutely spot on in saying that um, sort of uh, these challenges are, are issues that people face on, on the day-to-day, -day, uh, accessing accessible tra transportation, being able to find suitable, safe and accessible accommodations. Um, all that is a challenge in the day-to-day -day life, not to mention when resources and capacity um, are stretched uh, in a crisis situation. Uh, so it's really important that when we are out of a crisis situation, so either in a recovery period or even in the uh, lead up to where we can prepare, um, trying to implement as much um, universal design principles uh, as possible. So really trying to take a look at how we are designing all sorts of infrastructure, um, be it for both uh, accommodations, uh, transportation, uh, all of it sort of needs to have an eye of accessibility. And I think a lot of new and, and modern developments are have been taking more and more of that into account, but we still have a, a lot of uh, a lot of work to do. And I think that uh, by trying to to mobilize um, th those efforts uh, in advance in an emergency, and also um, connecting that by making. Um, infrastructure generally um, safe and accessible um, and secure for, for folks with disabilities also can help us in, in a public safety lens. And uh, some things that we're learning about uh, from emergency preparedness is um, just how urban design in general can really impact the safety and resilience of a community. 
Um, so it's really important that uh, we're, we're trying to invest and invest and address these issues now in the lead up to emergencies because we know they're going to be issues. And then also having specific designated services to help fill in those gaps. Um, often you'll find that emergency plans um, that are developed individually. So like for commercial uh, businesses or, or even um employers uh, will make emergency plans, um, but not necessarily coordinate um, with other organizations in the area. So they might be relying on the same resources that will have to be prioritized uh, in an emergency. So really trying to, to turn an eye to a generally make things as accessible as possible, and then also developing that, that designated services and um, Part of the issue is that when you're doing shelter for um, evacuations, for example, or even just um, emergency operation uh, centers or comfort centers where folks could just go on a temporary basis, whether there's a power outage or the like, um, and get support, um, often they're in community centers. Um, and if you're in, in a smaller rural community, your community center might not be as accessible as, say, like a newer development in an urban center. So again, really trying to make sure that the, the disparity and capacity between communities is, is also addressed equitably. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about creating a vulnerable persons registry, not saying that that's a bad idea at all. I mean, I think it's a cornerstone of emergency preparedness for people with disabilities, but people do have concerns about privacy and fear of disclosure of a, of a disability. You know, we don't know who's going to get this information, how safely is it going to be stored and whether it'll have repercussions that were unintended. Do you have uh, thoughts about creating a best practice or, 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 you know, thoughts about best practices as we go about creating such a vulnerable persons registry? Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, within the past two years, I've definitely seen the conversation around vulnerable persons registries um, evolve more and more. And that's particularly in the context of Nova Scotia, where um, it was really looked at in the follow up to uh, Fiona. And now many different municipalities uh, in Nova Scotia have essentially implemented uh, their own versions of vulnerable persons registry or voluntary vulnerable persons registries and more and more communities are looking to do the like and a lot of it comes from the fact that um, municipalities lead emergency response so really it starts with the local governments um, and again that can play into the capacity issues the how information is stored how securely is it stored um, and often um, the best practices is really to try and limit as much as possible who can access the data and try and make sure it's as secure as possible and that also people um, who are signing up for the service like, fully understand um, what what it is that they can expect uh, from signing up on this service. So I think uh, Halifax, for example, has done a really good job and many of the Nova Scotia communities have sort of tried to follow the same suit in the sense of like um, by put, stating very clearly that by um, putting yourself on the registry or sort of providing information about what your needs are in emergency to help with prioritization, but putting yourself on the list doesn't necessarily guarantee immediate support. So there's a lot of risk in sort of managing um, those expectations. And then there's also a coordination factor and people are moving around between communities all the time. Um, what happens um, if someone who is like on a registry in one jurisdiction um, is in a different community uh, when uh, disaster strikes? And as we know, disasters don't like to obey borders or, or jurisdictional limits. Um, so often a, a single event can impact multiple communities. So I think that that level of coordination and data sharing is really where more provincial or territorial uh, support can come in. And uh, if you look federally, um, Accessible uh, Standards Canada has also put out um, some key best practice information 
around creating um, these registries. And a lot of it is around um, advocating for the uh, voluntary aspect, um, stating that it's primarily for folks who are living alone uh, and, and don't have access to um, additional supports and that um, the expectations of what they can uh, reasonably expect to see uh, during an emergency is also really important. So I think many communities have tried to do a really good job with, with it so far, and uh, hopefully their, their learning and, and sharing of information can, can help these um, uh, systems uh, improve even more. About two years ago, I had a guest on The Pulse who happened to be a person with a disability, and she created this uh, YouTube mini-series talking about um, what a person with a, a disability needs to do when dealing with a particular kind of emergency I and mean, it wasn't just a natural you know disasters but also things like you know what to do if you have a fire or if there's a flood and you know so on and so forth and one of the things she really emphasized was having a kit with uh, spare clothes and your documentation and medication and extra batteries and one of the things we acknowledged is that it's well and good to say that in theory you should have a a, a bag with supplies that you can grab in case of an emergency but the reality can get a lot more complicated, uh, not least of, of the problems faced by people with disabilities is the fact that things like medications have a short shelf life. They have to be properly refrigerated. So you can't just throw them into a, a bag and forget, forget about them. But also bigger concerns, uh, again, concerns that, uh, that are relevant at all times around income and not having the disposable income to be able to buy extra supplies because you're going from paycheck to paycheck. What thoughts do you have about that? Because that advice about having a bag or some kind of a kit that you can grab at a pinch in an emergency is so taken for granted that I don't think a lot of people have really given thought to the fact that not everyone can afford to put such a kit together, especially people with disabilities. Uh, absolutely. Preparation is absolutely a privilege. Um, it takes a lot of money to be able to have the, the time and ability and resources to uh, try and gather uh, supplies for, for yourself and your household for approximately 72 hours at the minimum is, is what is uh, recommended um, by Public Safety Canada. But uh, exactly what you mean when uh, folks are living on limited incomes and, and don't have necessarily the resources or capacity to be able to um, create uh, emergency kits for themselves and not to mention other members of their household. Um, animals um, as well uh, are, are a big consideration. And so I definitely think that particularly on, on the uh, government side of things, often that advice is, is very much given out of like, oh, like here's how you can create a kit, but there isn't that extra piece of like, oh, here's funding resources for how you can uh, get extra support if you, if you need these um, resources and additional support to, to get them. So I, I definitely think that that's been uh, a gap in, in sort of how we actually can deliver um, effective awareness and programming and services uh, in the emergency management space uh, to people with disabilities, especially. Um, but in that same vein, um, by having more programs and services that really try and support folks in improving their individual and household uh, resiliency and having, uh, whether it's more targeted funding um, pieces or, or general kits being made and distributed or just any way that folks are able to actually access um, more resources um, will sort of be imperative uh, going forward, especially as we see the frequency of different emergencies uh, increase and you also have the burden of insurance and uh, disaster relief funding that's not quite keeping pace with the actual need. Um, so there's a, definitely a lot of elements there and um, I think that it absolutely needs to be more of a focus in trying to bridge that gap and how people can actually better um, prepare themselves because the fact of preparation being such a privilege um, is very much overlooked. Um, I may be going out on a bit of a limb here, but 
Uh, do you think we need to revisit the definition of an emergency? And I say this because I'm thinking about something like an extreme heat wave, which may not be an emergency in the sense of everybody needs to leave their homes and needs to be evacuated because we're on the verge of a massive flood or, or wildfire. But it could be an emergency for a person with a disability who is trapped in their apartment and doesn't have access to air conditioning and can't really leave to go to the mall or to get a cold drink. I mean, I have heard heartbreaking stories about people dying from extreme heat, but we're not really calling that an emergency in the sense of an emergency like a flood or a wildfire. So do you think that we need to loosen that definition or at least revisit the definition in light of the isolation and the barriers that many people with disabilities face that the able-bodied population at large does not? Yes, so I think that we're definitely see that come into play, particularly as a climate change and gives us a, a real run for our money, so to speak, uh, in, in these uh, sort of new and more extreme events um, that are occurring. And the majority of folks uh, who, who died in, the, I believe, the most recent uh, BC um, heat wave were, in fact, uh, folks with disabilities and or seniors. Um, so particularly as we look to an aging population as well, and, and that climate change is going to make these emergency events uh, more more intense, more frequent. Um, revisiting uh, and expanding the definition uh, of emergency, uh, and really taking a look at um, what natural uh, hazards uh, look like in a modern day and in the world that we're living in. And then simultaneously, something that's been coming up quite a bit is also as the um, definition of disability itself is continuously evolving, and how um, that that public and, and social interpretation um, uh, continuously evolves over time. So I think that's also a really important element um, as well that we need to consider that even what we think of being a disability today might not fully line up to how we as a society uh, see it in, in 10 years from now or so on. As we wrap up, I have to ask you, how do you feel we're doing as a country? Do you feel generally optimistic or do you feel pessimistic about the state of emergency preparedness for people with disabilities? So my answer has changed. So if you had asked me about a little over a year ago, I, I definitely would have been like, oh, we, we really need to do more. And it's just not enough people are paying attention. Like everyone, including public and government and, and, and or organizational leaders, like understand that emergency preparedness is really important. However, many people aren't willing to sort of make that um, investment in planning and resources and staffing capacity and program and service development for things that may or may not happen. However, I think within the past couple of years in this country, we've absolutely seen that this is our new reality, that uh, these emergencies are getting worse, they're getting more intense, they're uh, happening more often, they're affecting new parts of the country than they have before. Uh, we now have both coasts burning at the same time and our, our system isn't quite prepared uh, to handle that. However, I will say as someone who's been doing a lot of research in this space within this past year alone, I don't think I've seen as much momentum, government will, political will in terms of actually moving forward on ways that uh, we can improve our emergency response. And I'd even say that uh, there's been more work around um, disability support and emergency preparedness within this past year. And I'm also coming from the context of Nova Scotia, where we've really had to take a, a hard look at our emergency preparedness uh, strategies, and particularly how we're supporting uh, people with disabilities. So seeing uh, things like the vulnerable, voluntary vulnerable persons registries um, happen in, in about a year, essentially, or even less than that from being raised as an idea to actually implemented um, is, is pretty remarkable to see. And also I've seen more and more uh, gov federal government 
um, departments from across the board really turning an eye to emergency management and what their role is and organizations that traditionally haven't seen themselves in emergency response have actually been trying to take the lead in, in their own uh, ways. So I really think that uh, we're, we're finally really getting there in terms of uh, mobilizing the right people and, and the people that are in the space really trying to do the, the best that they can. Uh, so I, I am very much uh, hopeful that uh, we, we can meet the task of, of uh, these emergencies. Caitlin, thank you very much for being on the program. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Such an important topic. And I really appreciate that you took the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That was Caitlin Lowe, Research Assistant at the McKeegan Institute for Public Policy and Governance at Dalhousie University. He joined us today from Halifax, and we were talking about emergency preparedness for people with disabilities. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode of The Pulse, write to us at feedback at ami.ca or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to leave permission to play the voicemail on the program. Also, if you want to reach out to us on X, you can do so at AMI Audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can find me on X at Chuita Gupta. And you can always reach out to us on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. If you are watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast, please feel free to leave comments down below and don't forget to subscribe to be notified about future episodes. The videographer for today's episode is Ted Cooper. Our video editor is Jordan Steves. Marco Flolo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is AMI-audio's podcast coordinator. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Joy Gupta. Thanks so much for listening.